Uh, my name is Pastor Kevin. If I haven't had the chance to greet you, I hope I get the chance to uh, at some point today. Um, just glad to be able to be here to worship with you. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, you know, this past weekend, there's a lot of things going on. There's basketball tournaments and, and stuff. And, and, I, and I had this opportunity, uh, some of you were there with us, to, to attend a multi-ethnic uh, conference here in, here in Yakima. They brought in um, a ministry called Crosslink, brought in a speaker by the name of Mark DeMaz, who is, is uh, probably one of the um, nation's leading experts in multi-ethnic ministry. And it was so fun this weekend just to come and, and, and hear and glean, glean from him. And really, it fits the context of where we are in Yakima, uh, the diversity that we see in our, in our city. And uh, man, I am so excited for our church. I'm so excited that this is a part of our DNA, that we desire to be uh, ethnically and economically diverse, that we would reflect the diversity of our city. And uh, man, I, I love this place. I love the vision we have. And uh, I'm excited for what God is going to continue to do uh, right here at Restoration Church. So thank you for uh, being a part of that with us. So one of the observations I've made about life, and I don't know if you've made this observation yourself, but you, have you ever noticed how life just happens? Like you can, you can have all the plans in the world, you can have all the dreams, and you can have everything in place, and, and, and you can say, man, this is the way things are going to play out. And you make all those plans, and then life just happens anyways, right? So I remember when I was growing up, I, 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 you know, there's a few things I said about myself. I said, you know, I'm, I'm okay if I put a little bit of weight on, and, and obviously you can see I'm okay with that, you know? I'm, I'm okay with my white skin. I've got pasty white skin, you know? And for me, I've got two colors. I've got white and red. There's no tan. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the two. That's just the way. I'm okay with that, you know? And as I was growing up, I was, I'm okay if I go gray with my hair. Like, I'm okay with gray hair. But the one thing I remember, I don't want to happen. I didn't want to lose my hair, okay? It was just the one thing. I don't know why. I just did not want to lose my hair. So, you know, I did all this stuff. I I got the nice shampoo, and I'm shampooing my hair, and I'm massaging my scalp. And and, and then this weird thing happened uh, uh, a couple years ago. I, I wanted to get the hipster haircut, you know, the hipster, you know, where it's short and and you comb it over on top, and it's longer on top. And I was in the mirror, and I comb my hair over, and there's like this chunk of hair missing right here. And I'm like, what? So I combed it the other way, and there's another chunk of hair missing right here. And I'm like, this is not possible. And so, and so, you know, I started playing with it, trying to figure out, okay, how can I, you know, I, I look like Donald Trump, you know, where it's like, dude, you can comb your hair over, but it's still missing. And uh, so I, I, I think I figured out, you know, if I comb my hair like this, it covers up some of those spots and makes it look natural. What I probably need to do is I probably just need to go like Mr. Clean, you know, and just shave it all. Keep the goatee, but just shave it all up on top. And, uh, you know, the observation when we say life happens is, is we can make all the plans in the world. And we can have all the dreams. And we can say, man, this is what I picture. This is what I want in life. But life is just going to happen. Whether we want it to or not. And I think the Apostle Paul uh, knew this idea that life happens. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. If you need a Bible, there's an usher in the back. and Slip your hand up and he'll bring one of these uh, Bibles up to you. You know, this, this, this book of Philippians is actually a letter that was written by Paul to the church at Philippi, to the Christians in Philippi. And if we, remember, if we remember about this church, we know that Paul planted this church 10 years before he wrote this letter. And if you remember the way he planted this church, um, he went 
Paul went and he preached in Philippi. And a, and, and a lady by the name of Lydia, and she was described as a seller of purple goods. So she, she owned the local TJ Maxx, all right, just for context. And so uh, he goes and preaches about the gospel of Jesus Christ, about Jesus dying for her sins. And Lydia responds and says, man, I want a relationship with Jesus. And she becomes a Christian then a little bit later, Paul's going through the town, and there's this demon-possessed little girl who's a slave girl. And he calls, and, and he casts the demon out of the little girl, and she becomes a Christian as well. And then we know as well that Paul was in jail, and the Philippian jailer, there was this, this earthquake, and the Philippian jailer says, Hey, what must I do to be saved? And him and his entire household got saved. And so this is, this is the start of the church at Philippi. And you can picture Paul planning this church and having the greatest of aspirations for the church. Man, this church is going to do great things, and I've got such hopes for this church. And you can and just anticipate the, the hopes and the wishes that Paul had about this church. Well, we fast forward 10 years. Paul is now sitting in a prison cell in Rome. He's been arrested and charged with preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's facing a potential death sentence. And here's Paul sitting there, and the Philippian church hears about this, and they say, man, we love Paul. So what we're going to do is we're going to take an offering, we're, we're, we're going to take a financial gift together, and send it with a messenger to take it to Paul. So the messenger goes and gives this financial gift to Paul to help take care of Paul's needs while he's in prison. And Paul says, hey, tell me, tell me about the church. Tell me what's happening at the church of Philippi. And that's when they say, you know what, life happens. Life happens. There's these two ladies in the church probably leaders in the church, and they had some sort of disagreement. And this disagreement has led to disunity and division within the church. And then this, this, this division, it doesn't just end there. The division causes anxiety and worry and fear amongst everybody within the church. And so this, this division, this anxiety, is one of the reasons why Paul wrote this letter to the church at Philippi. And we think about the themes that we've already heard. We think about the themes in chapters 1 through 3. Remember, we've talked about these themes. We talked about having this joy despite our circumstances. That Paul says, I can be sitting in a prison cell facing a potential death sentence, but I can still have joy in the Lord. And how we should be able to have joy in God despite our circumstances. That was the first theme. Second theme we talked about was humility. How Paul said we should consider others more significant than ourselves. We should look out for the interests of others more so than looking out for the interests of ourselves. And then, of course, the, the third major theme of this book was dealing with an eternal mindset. With the fact that our life in this earth is so short. It is so short in, in comparison with eternity in heaven that goes on forever. And because we are citizens of heaven as a Christian, that we should spend this life preparing for eternity because it's going to be much better than anything this world has to offer. So these are the themes that Paul has already written about. And you look at these themes and understand, man, these themes are coming to a climax right here in chapter 4 when we're dealing with division within the church, disunity within the church, and we're dealing with anxiety over what's happening Within the church, you see these come to a climax right here in chapter four. So before we jump in, I'm going to ask you to just join me in prayer for our time together. God, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be gathered here this morning uh, with your people. Um, God, we believe the people are the church, not the building. Uh, God, we're thankful for this building. It's a beautiful place to be able to come and, and worship. But God, uh, 
our desire is to be with your people today. And so, God, thank you for this opportunity. I pray as we open up your word, God, I pray that you would help us to lean in, that you would help us to hear your word, that we wouldn't hear just a pastor's opinion, uh, that, God, even as a pastor, you'd help me to step out of the way, that, God, your word would be spoken, your word would be taught. And, God, more importantly, that our hearts would be able to hear and receive your word today. God, I pray that you would encourage us, that you meet us exactly where we are, and give us exactly what we need for today. God, we love you, and we praise you, and we ask this in your name. Amen. title of today's message is Joy uh, Instead of Anxiety. Joy Instead of Anxiety. And we're going to start reading in Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 2. Here's what Paul wrote. He said, I entreat Euodia. This is a lady in the church. And he says, and I entreat Suntuhe, which is another lady in the church. He says, I entreat these two ladies to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored alongside with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. See, what we just read, life happens. Life happens. You've got these two ladies, and anytime you get some ladies together, there's a potential for issues. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. And so there's these two ladies, and there's some sort of disagreement going on. And, and, and Paul is going to address this disagreement. And I think it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. Paul uses these ladies by their first name. He, he uses their first name. He says, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Suntuhe. And you wonder, why does he use their names? Probably because this division, this disagreement these ladies had, had probably spread throughout the whole church. Everybody knows about it. So you can imagine, you can imagine this letter coming to the church at Philippi and somebody reading this letter in front of the entire congregation. And then Paul says, hey, you two ladies, you two ladies, I'm calling you out to to agree in the Lord, to put this past you. So we say, well, what, what do we know about these ladies? What can we tell about these two ladies? We can tell that these ladies are Christians. We would believe that they are Christians. Paul says that their names are written in the book of life. That's kind of like the invitee list to heaven. And so if your name's in the book of, of, of life, then chances are you're, you are a Christian. That's how it works. So we would trust that they're a Christian. We would also believe that these ladies are probably mature Christians. Paul says they have labored alongside me for the gospel. They've fought with me to advance the gospel. So these ladies are possibly leaders in the church. They're involved in, in ministry. They're mature believers. And I don't know about you, but my question always comes into, well, what are they disagreeing about? Like, what's their, what's their argument about? I mean, that's my question. And w- the assumption that we can make is this wouldn't be a theological issue. This wouldn't be a sin issue because Paul doesn't really identify what it really is. And Paul has this, this uh, aura about him that when he writes a letter, if there's a sin issue, man, he's calling the sin issue out. If there's a theological issue, Paul's got no problem addressing a theological issue and say, you're wrong, you need to come back to the center of the gospel. And so we would assume, because Paul doesn't say that, we would assume that this wasn't a theological or a sin issue. I think the Bible doesn't tell us what the issue is because the issue doesn't really matter. Paul's issue with these ladies is not the reason for the division. Paul's issue with these ladies is the division itself. Because what happens is when there's division in the church, when there's disunity in the church, our eyes are no longer on the prize. 
We're no longer on mission. We're no longer focused on the gospel. We're no longer focused on Jesus. We're no longer focused on, on the mission to know Christ and to make Christ known and to spread the gospel throughout all of the Yakima Valley, throughout all the region, throughout the entire country, throughout the entire world. When there's division, our eyes are off the prize and onto ourselves. We become inward focused. And when there's division amongst leaders in the church, that as well is going to spread throughout the entire church, the entire organization. Because what happens is when you've got division between these two leaders, people begin to take sides not based on the facts. People would take these ladies' sides not based on the facts, but they would base it on, 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 on who they like better. So somebody might say, you know, uh, Euadia. You know, she, she taught my kids in Sunday school class. So I'm choosing her side because she has been nice to my kids. And so I'm on, I'm on her side in the disagreement. And somebody else would say, well, you know, Suntuhei, you know, she's my favorite worship leader. You know, she sings the best songs. So I choose her side because she has been good and she has served me well. And so the church would choose sides, not based on facts, but based on who they like better, on who has been more friendly to them. And this is what happens within the church. And Paul's already written about this. Paul's already written, and remember that theme about humility, about considering others more uh, significant than yourselves. And so here's what Paul says. Paul says, here's what we need to do. Here's what we need to do. He writes to his true companion. This would have been probably an elder, maybe a pastor of the church. He says, hey, true companion, here's what I need you to do. I need you to mediate. I need you to put on a black and white shirt and hold the whistle. And I want you to, 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 to be the referee. You know, I want you to hear both sides out. And then I want you to, to, to say, here's how we're going to agree. Here's how we are going to move forward. Because again, division will kill the church. Division kills the mission. It completely gets us off track. And Paul says, we need a mediator. We need a mediator so we can come to an agreement, so we can get back on mission of the gospel. Now, this is, this is just an interesting thing because life happens. And when you're in relationships with people, whether it's in marriage, whether it's in the church, whether it's in your workplace, when you're in relationship with people, relationships can be messy. Anybody attest to that? Relationships can be messy. Yes, relationships, that's just the way they are. And, and this, this, what, what Paul is, is, is showing us here is when there is disagreements, when we have a, 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 a disunity, a, a disagreement between us, it's okay for us to call a mediator. It's okay for us to say, hey, pastor, wife and I, we're having this struggle, we're having this argument, we can't make any progress. Could you help us? Could you listen to our stories, put on the, the black and white shirt and blow the whistle and, and, and be able to say, hey, here's how we can move forward and get past this disagreement. I mean, there's Christian counselors, there's pastors, there's mature believers. This is a healthy thing for us because when, there, when we allow this disunity to continue, when we allow division, man, it completely gets us off track. It gets us off track of the prize that we are pursuing, the, the gospel and, and spending eternity with Jesus in heaven. And so this is, where, this is where Paul is giving us an example. Hey, when there is this kind of division, it's okay to call in a mediator, to ask for some help, to say, hey, you know what? I want you to come in and speak into this. Help us figure out how we can move forward on the same page. And what happens next, though, is significant. Because there's this division, there's this disunity between these two ladies. And what this is going to do is going to lead to other problems within the church. So look at me starting in verse 4. 
Paul says, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I know some of you are looking at that and say, he doesn't really mean always, does he? Like in the Greek, that doesn't mean always. That probably means like rejoice in the Lord on Sundays. And then, you know, the rest of the week, you cannot rejoice in the Lord. Yep, that's exactly what it means. In fact, Paul means this when he says it again. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. It says verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. He says, do not be And here's the key word. What's that word? Anxious. Do not be anxious about, and what's that next word? Anything. Do not be anxious about anything, but in prayer, but but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence... If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. See, notice what happens. When life happens, life often brings anxiety. It just does. It brings anxiety. It brings uncertainty. It brings fear. It brings uh, worry. I mean, this is what happens when, when, when life doesn't go the way we want it to. And life doesn't go the way we want it to. That's just the way life works. When it goes, it brings this anxiety. And you may say, well, what, is, what do you mean by anxiety? Well, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary would define anxiety like this. Is fear or nervousness about what might happen. You'll say, well, well, what does that mean in layman's terms? In layman's terms, my definition of anxiety is anticipating the future and the worst possible scenario and freaking out about it, right? Anybody say, I've been there? That's me? That's my life? See, when life happens, life brings anxiety. I had one of these, I had one of these life-happening moments this last fall. This last fall, I got a call from my sister. And uh, it, was, it was a dreaded call. It was, it was a big C word. Mom has cancer. Cancer of the esophagus. And I got off the phone, and I did what any one of us would have done. Okay, no, I, I didn't pray. I grabbed my computer and I googled cancer of the esophagus. Isn't that what we do? Doctors, do you just hate when we do that? Yes. Yeah. But that's what we do, right? So I googled cancer of the esophagus and I'm looking at all these statistics. And I'm just blown away. And I have this anxiety that takes over me. And the rest of the night, I'm off and on crying. I can't eat. I remember trying to go to sleep. You can't sleep. You can't sleep when this goes on. I remember I was feeling guilty and I'm like, I don't know what I was feeling guilty for. I just had this sense of, of feeling guilty that my mom had, had cancer and, and you have this fear. And what happens if she dies? How does this affect my family? Anxiety, worry. I'll tell you, mom's doing great. Mom has, has, has been through chemo and radiation. Uh, she had, uh, she had uh, surgery to have the cancer removed. She had some complications and spent about six weeks at Virginia Mason Hospital. Uh, but praise God, she is on her road to recovery and is getting stronger every day. But man, life happens. And life brings anxiety, does it not? I mean, anyone in here say, man, I've dealt with that kind of worry and, and that fear and that anxiety. Man, that's, that's, that's something I've dealt with in my own life. There's lots of places that bring anxiety you might have work. work. Work can be a place that you get anxiety from. 
You've got a big project coming up. You've got something that's got to get done. Everybody's going to be looking at it, and you worry about it. You, you stay up thinking about it. Man, I've got to do well on this. I need this to go well for me. Maybe it's, you know, I always hated coming to year end. Year end, you've got to get everything cleaned up and ready for the next year. Taxes, that kind of thing. That was always an anxious time for me. And I tell you, the, the, for me, the worst uh, part of anxiety for me is when my boss would call me and say, hey, hey, I want to talk with you about something. Can you come see me tomorrow morning? Like, isn't that the worst? If you're a boss, don't wait till tomorrow morning. Because like that is a horrible night, right? I mean, you're just, what's he going to talk? I mean, it's probably going to be fine, but what's he going to talk to me about? What's going on? Just do it now. Money. Money brings anxiety. I mean, we, we, we need money, right? I mean, we've got to pay rent. We've got to buy groceries. We've got to put gas in the car. You know, money is just something that we need. And when the money isn't there, there's an anxiety that comes from that. Man, how am I going to provide for my family? How am I going to take care of my basic needs? How am I going to get through this? But what's funny is, is a lack of money can bring anxiety, but so can a lot of money. Because what happens is when you have more money and you start buying more expensive things, man, the more expensive things get, the more anxiety that comes with it. So, for example, you know, I've got this little hoopity car. And, uh, you know, what, when I'm going to the store, man, I'm looking for the closest spot possible. You know, I'm going to pull up and, you know, I'm, I'm, this car's three inches from me. I don't care. I want the closest spot. Okay. So, my wife, we've got a nicer car for my wife. I wanted her to have a good, reliable car. And we're going into Target one day. And, and there's a spot right in the very beginning. And I turn my blinker on. She's like, oh, no. Oh, no. I don't park here. She's like, you, you see that spot way over there? Yeah, well, I park past that. Like, I park at Bob's Burgers and Brews. And you got to take a shuttle to the front door at Target. You know, because uh, it really wasn't that far. But... It was like, no, I don't, I don't park there because this is what happens. When, when something has more value, there just becomes this, you know, you want to take care of it. And this becomes this anxiety within it. Kids. Do kids bring anxiety? Anybody got kids? Anybody say amen? We've got five kids. We've got a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 10-year-old, an 8-year-old, a 6-year-old. I just told you their ages just to make sure I could do it. So I got them checkmarked. Good for the day. When the Bible says that our kids are a gift from God. And, and I have a responsibility as a father. And, and you have a responsibility as a parent. You have a responsibility to protect your kids. To provide for them. To care for them. To shape them. To lead them. But does that mean ultimately that we can protect them from all of the dark forces of the world? Does that mean we can protect them from all the bad things happening in this world? Absolutely not. Yet how many parents live like helicopter parents, constantly hovering around those kids, trying to prevent any bad thing from happening to them? Like, I'm going to control everything so everything works out just good, and my kids don't ever have to go through hardship. They don't ever have to have anything bad happening to them. Listen, your goal as a parent is to lead your kids to maturity. And maturity means that they learn to deal with hardships. They learn to deal with difficulty. Man, I I tell you, being a parent is is scary. It is scary, hard, and difficult. And when we we allow fear and anxiety for our kids to consume us, man, it robs us. It robs us of the joy of having kids. It prevents us from just enjoying them while they're there. Health issues. Health issues bring anxiety, do it not? 
Those things where, where somebody gets sick around you and you begin to worry, well, what happens if something happens to them? Uh, you know, how am I going to pay for all the medical bills? You know, something happens to you. Well, what's going to happen? How am I going to work? How am I going to... I mean, anxiety that comes with health issues. And especially if the doctors can't figure out exactly what it is. There's this additional anxiety. Man, I don't even know what's going on with me. I'm, I'm, I'm not clinical. It's something completely different. Death. Death brings anxiety. I know there are some in our church who are still struggling through this. A death that happened a while ago. And they're still dealing with, man, man, I don't know how I'm going to get through the next holiday. I don't know how I'm going to get through this because this is, is, is so hard because they're not with me anymore. Man, we think about relationships. Relationships bring struggle. It brings anxiety. I mean, some of, us, some of us in here, all we've known is broken relationships. That's all we've known. That's all we've experienced. And so when we have a new relationship, we're immediately thinking, okay, well, when, when is this going to come crashing down? When am I going to get hurt? When am I going to get burned? Because that's all I've known. And there's that anxiety in that relationship. Waiting for things to fall apart. Relational struggles. Divorce. You know what kind of divorce leads kids to have all sorts of anxiety? Man, why doesn't dad love me? Why doesn't dad show up anymore? Why, why, why doesn't mom talk to dad anymore? There's this anxiety that kids deal with because of a relational struggle. And then we think about social issues and, and, and social, social anxiety. You know, even, even what about church and like anxiety stepping into a new church? I mean, if you're a regular, man, this is like, this is comfortable to you. This is who you are. But if you're the new person... Stepping into a church, the anxiety you feel, man, everybody's going to be looking at me. Everybody's going to judge me. Everybody's going to make a decision on me because I'm not like everybody else because I'm the new person. They don't know me. There's an anxiety within that. We look at race race issues. There's an anxiety dealing with race issues and trying to cross some of those cultural boundaries. So let me just say it again. Life happens. And, And when life happens, life brings anxiety. And many of us have, have struggled through anxiety. Many of us have said, man, I, I've dealt with that fear. I've dealt with that worry in my life. And see, the problem with anxiety is when we have that anxiety and that worry, is what we're doing is we are reacting to our circumstances. When you are anxious, when, you're, when you have that fear, that worry, you are reacting to your circumstances. And what we have to do is we have to figure out how to stop reacting to our circumstances and start responding to Jesus. Because Jesus is our Savior. Jesus, we know he is full of love and grace. And we have to learn how to stop reacting to our circumstances and we start responding to who Jesus is. And that's it. So I tried to do a little, I tried to do a little equation for you. So you have your life circumstances. Go to the one before that. I think there's one before that. You have your life circumstances, and then you have your response, and that leads to reacting to your circumstances, which often leads to anxiety, leads to worry, leads to fear, because you are reacting to what's happening right in front of you. And what we have to learn how to do is put Jesus between our circumstances and between our reaction, because when you do that, you see your response follows the Jesus. And so you are no longer reacting to your circumstance. You're responding to Jesus. You see what I did there? No longer are you reacting to your circumstance. Now you are responding to Jesus. Instead of reacting to your circumstance. Listen, I know that that, that anxiety is is a huge deal in in our society and in our culture. 40 million Americans... 
struggle with anxiety. This, this dad is about 10 years old, came from the, um, came from the anxiety and depression uh, order of America. 40 million Americans struggle with anxiety. That's one-third of, uh, excuse me, that's one-fifth of our population. In fact, if you were to look at how much money is spent on, on, on illness related to anxiety, it's like $46 billion. That's one-third of the United States mental health bill. Anxiety is rampant. And I know there's someone here today, and you have become overwhelmed in your life with anxiety. There's fear. There's worry. And, and it's one of those things where it's just something that you, you, you feel like it's a condition. I just have to manage. I just have to deal with it because it's here and I can't do anything about it. But listen, if you think, if you think that, that anxiety is just something that you control functionally, what you're saying, anxiety is your God. If you think anxiety is something that has control over you and you just have to learn how to deal with it, you are saying, anxiety, you are my God. You're saying anxiety is in charge. Anxiety is in charge of your emotions. Anxiety is in charge of your health and of your relationships. Anxiety is in charge of your attitudes and your actions. You are saying anxiety is sovereign Lord of your life, not Jesus. Listen, it's not true. Anxiety is not just a condition to be managed. Jesus is our God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus died on the cross to free us from the weight of sin, to purchase our freedom. And we believe that God is our healer. We believe that God can do miracles. And in an instant, God can remove that anxiety from your life and from your heart. I know some of you are saying, well, man, man, Kevin, I've prayed to God and said, God, would you take this anxiety from me? Man, I've, I've prayed and I've pleaded, God, would you please just take this anxiety from me? But it feels like, you know, God hasn't answered my prayer. So, so why, why hasn't God answered? Is there help for me? And man, this is why I love the Bible. This is why I absolutely love the Bible. The Bible, we know the Bible is written by God. We know it's God's holy and perfect word. And, and, in, and because God, it is God's perfect word, God's word is also timeless. And it it deals with timeless issues, timeless conditions, timeless needs. And so as as Paul is giving these instructions, his instructions to deal with and overcome anxiety that he wrote to the Philippians 2,000 years ago are just as relevant to us today because this is a timely issue that we still deal with today. Now, sometimes when you, when you preach a, a sermon, there's different types of sermons. Some of them are going to be inspirational and people are going to be, oh, I feel so excited. I want to go and, and do this in my life and I want to make a difference. And, and some sermons are more, are more you know, they're, they're, they're deeper and they're going to deal with sin. And it's going to be more, you know, you're going to lament and you're going to repent and spend some time inside. Today is going to be very practical. This is just very practical because Paul's going to deal with this issue of anxiety and he's going to give some encouragement to the Philippians that I think also gives encouragement to us on how we can deal and overcome with our society. And Paul, as he writes this, he's writing from an attitude of love because he knows that a life full of anxiety is a miserable life. It's a miserable life. I mean, I mean, that anxiety, it hurts you emotionally, it hurts you spiritually, it hurts you mentally, emotionally, physically, every, everyone, every area. Anxiety will, will, will consume you. And Paul knows that. And Paul doesn't want the Philippians to live like that. And here's what he's saying. If we're able to get Jesus in between our circumstance and our response, then our response will be different. 
Our, our attitude will be different. Our actions will be different. Because we're responding to Jesus and his goodness and his love and his grace instead of reacting to our circumstances. In fact, I have a friend named Rob Caldwell. Some of you know Rob. Rob was a part of the church when he first uh, planted. And one of the things I loved about Rob is he was always so calm and steady. I mean, it doesn't matter what's happening around him. I mean, the building could be falling down. Uh, you know, his kids, kids could be out. Um, you know, he's got a six-year-old driving a car. He doesn't care. He's just calm and steady. I'm like, Rob, don't you ever get ruffled? And he was always so calm. And it's like, he had this peace from God. And, and as we talk about having mentors and people we look up to and want to learn from, Paul was a guy that I said, man, I want to learn from. Because it seemed like nothing ever ruffled his, his feathers. And I think as we look at what Paul's about to write, I think there's some keys here to uh, some, some disciplines, some practices that we can learn to put to practice in our own life, that we can deal with the anxiety and the fear and the worry that we struggle with. So Paul's going to list eight disciplines, eight practices that if we put to practice, it helps us to learn how to respond to Jesus instead of react to our circumstance. Okay? Number one, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. He says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord, not rejoice in your circumstance. Rejoice in the Lord. Because what happens, circumstances change. Circumstances. Life changes, does it not? One moment things are going good, the next minute things are going bad. Circumstances change. Jesus doesn't. Jesus is always good. Jesus is always God. Jesus is always the same. And if our circumstances determine whether or not we are happy or sad, remember, life happens. And, and typically when life happens, it's going to happen good and it's also going to, going to involve difficulty. And if your circumstances determine the outcome of your life, your circumstances will rule over you. They will rule over you and you'll be up one minute and down the next. But listen, if you have joy that comes from Jesus, Jesus is always good. Jesus always gives you something to rejoice about. And what happens is when we have this life of rejoicing, when we're able to rejoice in the Lord always, remember he said always, when we learn to rejoice in the Lord, you know what that does inside of our heart? It creates, it creates a heart of hope. When we have something to rejoice about, we will naturally begin to have hope in our heart because there's good. Even in the midst of difficulty, there's good because God is good. And God gives us that hope. Hope is a result of rejoicing. Second thing that Paul says. Paul says, respond reasonably. Verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now that word that I'm having a hard time saying, reasonableness, it is more so translated in the Bible as gentleness. He's saying, let your gentleness be known. And, I mean, let's just be honest. Let's be honest. When we're having anxiety, when we're worrying, when we're freaking out, are we being gentle? Are you thinking gentle things? No. I mean, anybody ever driven in, in rush hour traffic in Seattle? I, I, mean, I mean, it's horrible over there. I mean, like, if, if thoughts could kill, like, there'd be piles of, of dead bodies all over the place, you know, because you're like, don't learn how to drive, you know? That's why we live in Yakima, not Seattle. See, are you gentle? Are you reasonable when you're going through worry and anxiety? No. 
At least I'm not. And Paul says, let your gentleness be known. Let that be what comes out of you, is gentleness and and reasonability. Third thing Paul's going to say is he's going to say, know that Jesus is always with you. He says this in verse 5. He says, the Lord is at hand. Listen, we know Jesus has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And when we're stressed out and when we're anxious, we often feel so isolated. We feel alone. We feel abandoned. And what we have to do is we have to remember, man, yeah, Jesus died and and they buried him. But Jesus rose from that grave. Jesus didn't stay dead. He's alive and he is with us today. He's given us that promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we have to remember, we're not alone. We have Jesus with us. His presence has been promised to us and he will be with us to the end of the age. You are not alone. Third thing Paul's going to say, he's going to say pray. He says in verse 6, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. See, when you, when you have that fear and anxiety come over you, what's the, who's the first person you want to call? Like, you, you, like, typically we have that friend, you know, we have that friend that we can call and we can say whatever we need to say to, and they'll just listen and they'll just encourage you and they'll say, man, I'll, I'll sit with you and I'll encourage you and I'll be with you. No, our first, our, maybe it's your friend, maybe it's a spouse, maybe for you it's Jack Daniels, I wouldn't recommend that, but, you know, that's part of the way some people deal with it. And, and, and what Paul, what, what Jesus would say, what Paul would say is, no, your first call, your first call is always to Jesus. Your first response, when that anxiety, when that fear and the worry comes, your first call is always to Jesus. You say, well, how long, how long do I have to talk to Jesus? You talk to him until things get better. Not your circumstance. Your circumstance may take forever to get better. But you pray and you talk to Jesus until your heart begins to change. Until your attitude begins to soften. Until, uh, and, and, until your, your, your motives and your emotions and actions begin to feel better. Man, I tell you, you know, I, I don't think I really dealt with much anxiety until I started pastoring a church. I mean, pastoring a church, not because you guys are hard and difficult. You know, I, I love pastoring. But the problem is, is, is when you begin to love people, man, you want so much more for them. You want to see people achieve and thrive. And you want to see God use people in tremendous ways. And I want to see our little church here go and do great things in our community. And there becomes this anxiety. And there's nights where I cannot sleep. Because I'm so anxious for what I want to see God do right here at Restoration Church. And you know what I found? Those nights when I can't sleep, the only thing I can do is pray. I mean, I mean, I can sit on my phone for hours and it's just a waste of time. I mean, I can sit and look at the ceiling and it's just not very fun. But I find when I pray, when I just spend hours in prayer, and God does something inside of me, changes my heart, gives me that peace that I'm looking for, Man, our first response should always be to pray. It should be to pray. Hey, God, I need you right now. God, this is going. This is what's happening. God, I need you right now. God, I know you are good. God, I know that you are with me. Thank you, Jesus. Fifth thing that Paul's going to tell us is choose to be anxious about nothing. That's what he says in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about nothing. Nothing at all. This is, a, this is a choice. Listen, you can choose not to be anxious. You can decide and you can say, God, God, I'm going to talk to you. 
I'm going to be with you. I'm going to spend time with you. I'm going to think about you. I'm going I'm to work this out. I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to choose not to be anxious. I'm going to choose not to freak out. I'm going to choose not to, to be stressed out. Not that we're going to ignore what's happening. Not that we're going to pretend uh, nothing's there and we're going to diminish it. That we're going to pretend that things are great. But really, it's just, I'm not going to allow this one thing to ruin everything. I'm not going to allow this circumstance to ruin everything in my life. And I'm going to choose, I'm going to choose not to be anxious. Sixth thing that Paul would say is that we should meditate. He says in verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things that are good. I mean, when you're feeling anxious, when you're feeling anxious, man, chances are you're not thinking about Scripture, huh? When you're feeling worry and fear, chances are your thoughts are not about God. They're not about His Word. They're not about uh, the truth of the Gospel. Chances are your thoughts are consumed with a conflict. They're consumed with that person. They're consumed with that circumstance. And, And it's like you lose sight of God altogether. Paul says, think about these things. Whatever is just, whatever is true, whatever is true. Think about what, you, what you're worrying through, what you're thinking right now. Man, is that truth from God or is that a lie from Satan? This is a question you ask yourself. This fear, this anxiety that I'm feeling, is this, is this truth from God or is this a lie from Satan who's the father of lies? He says, whatever is just, Man, is, is the way that I'm acting, is this just or unjust? Am I seeking vengeance or am I responding with gentleness? He says, whatever is pure. We begin to think about our motives. Are our motives pure? Are our words and thoughts pure? Are our actions, our reactions, are they pure? He says, whatever is lovely. We begin to think, are my thoughts beautiful? Are my words beautiful because when i'm feeling that anxiety my words don't usually sound beautiful is my prayer life beautiful is my witness to others beautiful is it lovely or is it ugly he says whatever is commendable this means that would somebody would a mature christian look at your life and say man i see change in you i see you progressing i see you pursuing or is it shameful Paul says, verse 8, he says, if there's, any ex- if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about Jesus. Think about Scripture. Think about how to respond to Jesus instead of react. Think about rejoicing. This is what you do. You meditate on things that are good. You meditate on the Word of God. You meditate on what is true. Seventh thing that Paul is going to give us is he's going to say, live, out, live according to your theology. That's what he says in verse 7, or excuse me, verse 9. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. See, you live according to your theology. You don't live according to your anxiety. If you believe God, then act like it. If you believe God is sovereign and in control, then act on that. If you you believe that God works all things out for those who love him, then act on it. 
If you, if you believe that there's always something to rejoice about, then act on it. If you believe every hardship is a way for us to go closer to Christ, then act on it. I mean, these are things where we, 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 we theologically, we get it. We mentally, we agree to these things, but we forget to put them to practice. And listen, if you believe that God is good, then you can act on that. If you believe that God is in control, then you can act on that because he is in control. This isn't just something that you mentally agree to. You actually have to put it into practice. This is what James says. Faith without works is dead. Man, if you believe these things, then you have to live in them and act upon them. Last thing that Paul's going to give us, number eight, he says, accept the peace of God. Accept the peace of God. He says in verse seven and verse nine, verse seven says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And he says in verse nine, and the God of peace will be with you. This is what he says. He's saying, if you, if you live this, this disciplined lifestyle, if you live this lifestyle by doing these things, then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, was given to us as a gift. It is a gift. It surpasses all understanding because when life happens, when life brings anxiety, people would expect us to freak out. I mean, that's what we do. And, and what Paul is saying is there is a gift from God that is available to us called the peace that passes all understanding. And it is available to us that we can have peace even when we should be freaking out. That we can have God's presence even when we should be full of anxiety. It won't make any sense that you have peace in that moment when everybody else would expect you to be freaking out. It won't make any sense that you're not stressed and anxious when previously you would have been stressed and anxious. But this is an opportunity for new life in Jesus. That includes a better physical health, includes better mental health, includes better emotional health, better spiritual health, better relational health. That's what Jesus has called us to, to to live this way. Let me tell you, last thing thinking about this. Think, think about anxiety. What happens so many times for us is we don't think about these things until the anxiety hits us. I mean, anxiety comes, and we have the fear, and we worry, okay, I'm going to go and do those eight things that Paul says. Listen, this is different. This is a lifestyle. Listen, when we learn to put these things into practice, when things are good, guess what happens? We begin to uh, train our mind. We begin to train our bodies. We begin to train ourselves where, where before the anxiety comes, we're prepared for it. We're already acclimated to respond to Jesus instead of reacting to our circumstances. And so this is one of those things. This is good for you when you're struggling, but this is better for you when you're not. Because this is a lifestyle that helps us to learn how to respond to Jesus instead of reacting to our circumstances. You see what I'm saying here? This is something that, that we put into practice now. And so down the road, when, when things get tough, and we're not reacting to those circumstances, we're responding to Jesus. And that's the goal for us, that we would learn to respond to Jesus instead of reacting to our circumstances. Amen? Would you pray with me? God, I know that this topic of anxiety is, is real. Man, I know it's rampant. I know so many of us struggle with it. And it's such a burden for us. It consumes us at certain parts of our lives. 
God, I pray for freedom today. God, I pray that chains would be broken. That God, this peace that you've promised us would be received today, would be felt today. God, I know that there are some who say, God, that's just what I want. I want your peace. And so, God, I pray that you would fill this place with your peace, that your presence would be made known. That there'd be no doubt that you are here, that you are doing something supernatural in our lives, that your presence is filling us and giving us that peace that we can't explain. It's the peace that comes from you. God, I pray for, for those who struggle with this. God, I pray that you would just help them to learn how to, how to process it. That, God, this is not just something to be managed, but, God, this is something that you can overcome. God, this is a test of our faith. Do we really believe that you can do this? God, I pray that you would just help us to put these uh, principles to, to practice. That we would do these things, that we would think about what's lovely, think about what's good. And that, God, we would experience your peace. God, I pray that you would go with us this week, uh, that you would help us to put this, uh, to to understand what this looks like every day. This isn't just a a message to be heard, but, God, this is a a lifestyle to be adopted. So, God, I pray that you would help us to walk out of here today feeling your peace, motivated to overcome the anxiety in our lives. God, I thank you that you haven't left us alone That as we think about these real issues that we struggle with, God, your word has given us direction. Your word has given us hope. And God, as we have the opportunity right now to respond to your word, God, I pray that we would be, uh, have the opportunity just to rejoice, to rejoice in who you are, to rejoice in your salvation, to rejoice in your son, Jesus, and the sacrifice he made for us on the cross. God, you gave us that word. You said, rejoice always. And I pray as we have this opportunity to respond through these worship songs, that God, these would be songs that we would just rejoice to you and praise you and thank you for who you are and for what you have done in our lives. God, I love you and praise you and thank you for meeting us here today. We ask this in your name. Amen.